0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are finishing up the final chapter of Mao's On Practice and Contradiction. It's been a relatively short book overall, with wildly varying chapter lengths. But let's finish up the last one. Hitherto, analysis and synthesis have not been clearly defined. Analysis is clearer, but there hasn't been much said about synthesis. I had a talk with Shu Qi, footnote 27. He said that nowadays they only talk about conceptual synthesis and analysis, and do not talk about objective practical synthesis and analysis. How do we analyze and synthesize the Communist Party and the Kuomintang, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, the landlords and the peasants? the Chinese, and the imperialists. How do we do this, for example, in the case of the Communist Party and the Kuomintang? The analysis is simply a question of how strong we are, how much territory we have, how many members we have, how many troops, how many bases such as Yunnan. What are our weaknesses? We do not hold any big cities. Our army number is only 1,200,000. We have no foreign aid, whereas the Kuomintang has a great amount of foreign aid. If you compare Yunnan to Shanghai, Yunnan has a population of only 7,000. Adding to this the persons from the party and government organs and from the troops stationed in Yunnan, the total comes to 20,000. There's only handicrafts and agriculture. How can this be compared with a big city? Our strong points are that we have the support of the people, whereas the Kuomintang is divorced from the people. You have more territory, more troops, and more arms, but your soldiers have been obtained by impressment, and there is opposition between officers and soldiers. Naturally, there is also a fairly large portion of their armies which has considerable fighting capacity. It is not at all the case that they will all just collapse at one blow. Their weak point lies here. The key is their divorce from the people. We unite with the popular masses. They are divorced from the popular masses. They say in their propaganda that the Communist Party establishes community of property and community of wives, and they propagate these ideas right down to the primary schools. They compose a song. When Chu Te and Mao Zedong appear, Killing and burning and doing all kinds of things, what will you do?" They taught the primary school pupils to sing it, and as soon as they had sung it, the pupils went and asked their fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, thus producing the opposite effect of propaganda for us. There was a little child who heard the song and asked his father about it. His father replied, "'You mustn't ask. After you have grown up, you will see for yourself and you'll understand.' He was a middle-of-the-roader. Then the child asked his uncle. The uncle scolded him, replying, What is this about killing and burning? If you ask me again, I'll beat you. Formerly, his uncle was a member of the Communist Youth League. All the newspapers and radio stations attacked us. There were a lot of newspapers, several dozen in each city. Every faction ran one, and all of them, without exception, were anti-communist. Did the common people all listen to them? Nothing of the kind. We have some experience of Chinese affairs. China is a sparrow. Footnote 28. In foreign countries too, it's nothing else but the rich and the poor. Counter-revolution and revolution. Marxism, Leninism, and Revisionism. You really shouldn't believe that everybody will be taken in by anti-communist propaganda and join in opposing communism. Didn't we read newspapers at the time? yet we were not influenced by them. I have read The Dream of the Red Chamber five times, and have not been influenced by it. I read it as history. First I read it as a story, and then as history. When people read The Dream of the Red Chamber, they don't read the fourth chapter carefully, but in fact this chapter contains the gist of the book. There is also Leng Tzu Xing, who describes the Kuo Mansion, and composes songs and notes. The fourth chapter, the Battle Gourd Monk, decides the affair of the bottle gourd and talks about the talisman for officials. It introduces the four big families. Quote, Shout hip hurrah, for the Nanking Chia! They weigh their gold out by the jar. The Apang Palace scrapes the sky, but it could not house the Nanking Shi. The king of the ocean goes along, when he's short of gold beds, to the Nanking Wong. The Nanking Shu, so rich are they, to count their money would take all day. End quote. Footnote 29. The dream of the red chamber describes each of the four big families. It concerns a fierce class struggle involving the fate of many dozens of people, though only 20 or 30 of these people are in the ruling class it has been calculated that there are 33 in this category. The others are all slaves, over 300 of them, such as Yu Yang, Xu Qi, Second Sister Yu, Third Sister Yu, etc. In studying history, unless you take a class struggle view as the starting point, you will get confused. Things can only be analyzed clearly by the use of class analysis. More than 200 years have elapsed since The Dream of the Red Chamber was written, and research on the book has not clarified the issues, even down to the present day. From this we can see the difficulty of the problem. There are Yu Ping Po and Wang Kun Lun, who are both of them specialists. Footnote 30. Ho Chi Fang, footnote 31, also wrote a preface. A fellow called Wu Shi Chang, footnote 32, has also appeared on the scene. All this refers to recent research on the dream of the red chamber. I won't even enumerate the older studies. Tsai Yuan-pei's view of the dream of the red chamber was incorrect. Hu Xi's was somewhat more correct. Footnote 33 What is synthesis? You've all witnessed how the two opposites, the Kuomintang and the Communist Party, were synthesized on the mainland. The synthesis took place like this. Their armies came and we devoured them. We ate them, bite by bite. It was not a case of two combining into one as expanded by Yang Shen Chen. It was not the synthesis of two peacefully coexisting opposites. They didn't want to coexist peacefully. They wanted to devour you. Otherwise, why would they have attacked Yan'an? Their army penetrated everywhere in North Shenzi, except in the three Shen on the three borders. You have your freedom, and we have our freedom. There are 250,000 of you, and 25,000 of us. Footnote 34. A few brigades, something over 20,000 men. Having analyzed, how do we synthesize? If you want to go somewhere, you go right ahead. We still swallow your army mouthful by mouthful. If we could fight victoriously, we fought. If we could not win, we retreated. From March 1947 to March 1948, one whole army of the enemy disappeared into the landscape, for we annihilated several tens of thousands of their troops. When we surrounded Luchuan and Liu Kan came to relieve the city, the commander-in-chief Liu Kan was killed. Two of his three divisional commanders were killed and the other taken prisoner, and the whole army ceased to exist. This was synthesis. All of their guns and artillery were synthesized over to our side, and the soldiers were synthesized too. Those who wanted to stay with us could stay, and to those who didn't want to stay, we gave money for their traveling expenses. After we had annihilated Liu Kan. The brigade stationed in El Chuan surrendered without fighting. In the three great campaigns, the Shen, Hu Hai, and Peking Chen Xin, what was our method of synthesis? Fu Chou Yi was synthesized over to our side with his army of 400,000 men, without fighting, and they handed over their rifles. Footnote 35. One thing eating another, big fish eating little fish. This is synthesis. It has never been put like this in books. I have never put it this way in my books either. For his part, Yang Chen believes that two combine into one, and that synthesis is the indissoluble tie between two opposites. What indissoluble ties are there in this world? Things may be tied, but in the end they must be severed. There is nothing which cannot be severed. In the 20-odd years of our struggle, many of us have also been devoured by the enemy. When the 300,000 strong Red Army reached the Shen Can Ning area, there were only 25,000 left. Of the others, some had been devoured, some scattered, some killed or wounded. We must take life as our starting point in discussing the unity of opposites. Comrade Kang Sheng, quote, it won't do merely to talk about concepts," end quote. while analysis is going on there is also synthesis and while synthesis is going on there is also analysis. When people eat animals and plants they also begin with analysis. Why don't we eat sand? When they sand in rice it's not good to eat. Why don't we eat grass as do horses, cows and sheep, but only things like cabbage we must analyze everything. Shen Nung tasted the hundred herbs, footnote 36, and originated their use for medicine. After many tens of thousands of years, analysis finally revealed clearly what could be eaten and what could not. Grasshoppers, snakes, and turtles can be eaten. Crabs, dogs, and aquatic creatures can be eaten. There are some foreigners who don't eat them, in North Shanxi, they don't eat aquatic creatures, they don't eat fish, they don't eat cat there, either. One year, there was a big flood of the Yellow River, which cast up on the shore tens of thousands of pounds of fish, and they used it all for fertilizer. I am a native philosopher. You are foreign philosophers. Comrade Shang. quote, Could the chairman say something about the problem of the three categories? End quote. Engels talked about the three categories, but as for me, I don't believe in two of those three categories. The unity of opposites is the most basic law, the transformation of quality and quantity into one another is the unity of the opposites, quality and quantity, and the negation of the negation does not exist at all. The juxtaposition, on the same level, of the transformation of quality and quantity into one another the negation of the negation, and the law of the unity of opposites is triplism, not monism. The most basic thing is the unity of opposites. The transformation of quality and quantity into one another is the unity of the opposite's quality and quantity. There is no such thing as the negation of the negation. Affirmation, negation, affirmation, negation. In the development of things, Every link in the chain of events is both affirmation and negation. Slaveholding society negated primitive society, but with reference to feudal society it constituted, in turn, the affirmation. Feudal society constituted the negation in relation to slaveholding society, but it was in turn the affirmation with reference to capitalist society. Capitalist society was the negation in relation to feudal society, But it is, in turn, the affirmation in relation to socialist society. What is the method of synthesis? Is it possible that primitive society can exist side by side with slaveholding society? They do exist side by side, but this is only a part of the whole. The overall picture is that primitive society is going to be eliminated. The development of society moreover takes place by stages primitive society too is divided into a great many stages at that time there was not yet the practice of burying women with their dead husbands but that they were obliged to subject themselves to men first men were subject to women and then things moved towards their opposite and women were subject to men this stage in history has not yet been clarified although it has been going on for a million years and more. Class society has not yet lasted 5,000 years. Cultures, such as that of Longshan and Yangshao, footnote 37, at the end of the primitive era had coloured pottery. In a word, one devours another. One overthrows another. One class is eliminated. Another class rises. One society is eliminated another society rises. Naturally, in the process of development, everything is not all that pure. When it gets to feudal society, there still remains something of the slave-holding system, though the greater part of the social edifice is characterized by the feudal system. There are still some serfs, and also some bond workers, such as handicraftsmen. Capitalist society isn't all that pure either. And even in more advanced capitalist societies, there's also a backward part. For example, there was the slave system in the southern United States. Lincoln abolished the slave system, but there are still black slaves today. Their struggle is very fierce. More than 20 million people are participating in it. And that's quite a few. One thing destroys another. Things emerge, develop, and are destroyed. Everywhere is like this. If things are not destroyed by others, then they destroy themselves. Why should people die? Does the aristocracy die too? This is a natural law. Forests live longer than human beings, yet even they last only a few thousand years. If there were no such thing as death, then that would be unbearable. If we could still see Confucius alive today, the earth wouldn't be able to hold so many people. I approve of Chuang Tzu's approach." Footnote 38. When his wife died, he banged on a basin and sang. When people die, there should be parties to celebrate the victory of dialectics, to celebrate the destruction of the old. Socialism, too, will be eliminated. It wouldn't do if it were not eliminated. For then, there would be no communism. Communism will last for thousands and thousands of years. I don't believe that there will be no qualitative changes under communism, that it will not be divided into stages by qualitative changes. I don't believe it. Quantity changes into quality, and quality changes into quantity. I don't believe that it can remain qualitatively exactly the same, unchanging, for millions of years. This is unthinkable in the light of dialectics. Then there is the principle from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. Do you believe they can carry on for a million years with the same economics? Have you thought about it? If that were so, we wouldn't need economists. Or in any case, we could get along with just one textbook, and dialectics would be dead. The life of dialectics is the continuous movement towards opposites. Mankind will also finally meet its doom. When the theologians talk about doomsday, they are pessimistic and terrify people. We say the end of mankind is something which will produce something more advanced than mankind. Mankind is still in its infancy. Engels spoke of moving from the realm of necessity to the realm of freedom, and said that freedom is the understanding of necessity. This sentence is not complete, It only says one half and leaves the rest unsaid. Does merely understanding it make you free? Freedom is the understanding of necessity, and the transformation of necessity. One has some work to do. If you merely eat without having any work to do, if you merely understand, is that sufficient? When you discover a law, you must be able to apply it. When you create the world anew, you must break the ground and erect buildings. You must dig mines, industrialize. In the future, there will be more people, and there won't be enough grain. So men will have to get food from minerals. Thus it is that only by transformation can freedom be obtained. Will it be possible in the future to be all that free? Lenin said that in the future, airplanes will be as numerous in the sky as flies, rushing hither and thither. Everywhere they will collide, and what will we do about it? How will we maneuver them? And if we do, will things be all that free? In Peking at present, there are 10,000 buses. In Tokyo there are 100,000 vehicles. Or is it 800,000? So there are more automobile accidents. We have fewer cars, and we also educate the drivers and the people, so there are few accidents. What will they do in Peking 10,000 years hence? Will there still be 10,000 buses? They may invent something new, so that they can dispense with these means of transport, so that men can fly, using some simple mechanical device, and fly right to any place, and land wherever they like. It won't do just to understand necessity, we must also transform things. I don't believe that communism will not be divided into stages, and that there will be no qualitative changes. Lenin said that all things could be divided. He gave the atom as an example, saying that not only could it be divided, but the electron could too. Formerly, however, it was held that the atom could not be divided. The branch of science devoted to splitting the atomic nucleus is still very young, only 20 or 30 years old. In recent decades, the scientists have resolved the atomic nucleus into its constituents, such as protons, antiprotons, neutrons, antineutrons, mesons and anti-mesons. These are the heavy ones. There are also the light ones. For the most part, these discoveries only got underway during and after the Second World War. As for the fact that one could separate the electrons from the atomic nucleus, That was discovered some time ago. An electric wire makes use of dissociated electrons from the outside of copper or aluminium. In the 300 Li of the Earth's atmosphere, it has also been discovered that there are layers of dissociated electrons. There, too, the electrons and the atomic nucleus are separated. As yet, the electron has not been split, but someday they will certainly be able to split it. Chuang Tzu said, quote, A length of one foot, which is divided in half each day, will never be reduced to zero. End quote. This is the truth. If you don't believe it, just consider. If it could be reduced to zero, then there would be no such thing as science. The myriad things develop continuously and limitlessly, and they are infinite. Time and space are infinite. As regards regard space, Looking at it both macroscopically and microscopically, it is infinite. It can be divided endlessly. So even after a million years, scientists will still have work to do. I very much appreciate the article on basic particles in the Bulletin of Natural Science by Sicada. Footnote 39. I have never seen this kind of article before. This is dialectical materialism. He quotes Lenin. The weakness of philosophy is that it hasn't produced practical philosophy, but only bookish philosophy. We should always be bringing forward new things. Otherwise, what are we here for? What do we want descendants for? New things are to be found in reality. We must grasp reality. In the last analysis, is Zhen Xiu Yu, footnote 40, Marxist or not? I greatly appreciate those articles of his on Buddhism. There is some research behind them. He is a student of Tang Yong Tung. Footnote 41. He discusses only the Buddhism of the Tang Dynasty and does not touch directly on the Buddhism of later times. Sung and Ming metaphysics developed from the Chan school of the Tang Dynasty, and it was a movement from subjective idealism to objective idealism. Footnote 42. There is both Buddhism and Taoism, and it is wrong not to distinguish between them. How can it be proper not to pay attention to them? Han Yu didn't talk sense. His slogan was, learn from their ideas, but not from their mode of expression. His ideas were entirely copied from others. He changed the form, the mode of composition of the essays. He didn't talk sense, and the little bit he did talk was basically taken from the ancients. There is little new in writings like the Discourse on Teachers. Liu Tzu Ho was different. He knew the ins and outs of Buddhist and Taoist materialism. Footnote 43. And yet his Heaven Answers is too short, just a little bit. His Heaven Answers is a product of Chu Yuan's Heaven Asks. Footnote 44. For several thousand years, only this one man has written a piece such as Heaven Answers. What are Heaven Asks and Heaven Answers all about? If there are no annotations to explain it, you can't understand it. You can only get the general idea. Heaven Asks is really fantastic. Thousands of years ago, it raised all kinds of questions relating to the universe, to nature, and to history. Regarding the discussion on the problem of two combining into one, let Hong Chi reprint a few good items and write a report. And that brings us to the end of the reading, the chapter, and the book. We have now finished the entire thing. This one uh, was a little bit difficult, I felt, at times, because it was very wordy. Obviously, it is a translation from a different language, but just in terms of the text on the page in front of me, there was a lot of times where it would list out things, and specifically listing things out in pairs because of the law of opposites, basically, because it was giving examples of various opposed things in their relations, and that's something that can be hard to get across. I hope my cadence made it somewhat parsable, but also there's an extent to which it's wordy in a way where it's just giving many examples when you kind of get the picture after a few. It was also uh, somewhat more philosophical than some of the others we've read which is interesting given what the last chapter was just about but uh, in the previous ones it's felt more specifically grounded in the material realities of things and there were times when this book dealt a lot more with the kind of abstract philosophical approach to those things but that did mean I appreciated the parts where it dug into how you can use that more concretely. I mean, as the final chapter does say, there's not much point in a purely theoretical philosophy. You need a philosophy that is actually informing and interacting with real things. A particular, section I did find helpful in general was talking about the ways in which contradiction, as the book talks about it, is a thing about two opposing forces. And they're joined, they're part of a whole, in a sense your opposition is still a part within the country, uh, within your nation or whatever, that you still need to engage with and deal with. That doesn't mean that they need to be 100% an other enemy that you must never touch, but it also doesn't mean you just need to constantly accept them and let them be. We talked about siding with the Kuomintang, not because the Kuomintang were just fine or there was no issue with them whatsoever, but that they had a bigger, common enemy that both of them had more issues with than they had with each other. And it's not nonsense, it's not a betrayal to then team up to deal with that, because at the end of the day you do need to deal with the bigger threat. And as is a recurring theme with these books, I felt a little bit out of my depth when real-world events and people were being mentioned. Which is why the next thing we're going to be reading is about the history of Russia. Uh, I did mention this a few episodes back on an outro, but basically we're going to be reading Russia and Revolution, which will talk a bit about the Revolutionary Period, what materially was happening, what was going on, etc. I hope that will give me a better grounding for understanding the theory around the subject, because sometimes you can feel unmoored and detached when things aren't being applied to real world people, situations, conflicts, because the theory is all well and good when it's just words on a page or words in your ears, I guess. But to me, some of the most valuable stuff in these books comes from laying out stuff that either is tied to real-world examples that is then explained, or stuff where I can read it, here, at parse it, and understand how that reflects things that I have experienced. So next week we'll be delving into history. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, whether it's about readings or approaches, etc., anything at all, feel free to email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. It's always nice to hear from people who get something out of the show. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. More, most of those more focused on media analysis and not just reading things to you. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading.